0: So we're rolling. Cool. We are live. This is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary. And my name is Mark. And I have a passion that you should feel in control of your life. And so I what I do is I help people feel more in control of their business. And and part of how I do that is by letting them listen in on a conversation between two fanatical, passionate people who are passionate about the entrepreneurial world and give you an opportunity to listen to the details of the conversation uh, so you can figure out what you might not be doing right or one way that you could do something different that allows you to break through the ceiling that you're struggling with and allows you to really get control of your business and your life. And so today I'm here with Jeremy and Jeremy is the CEO of Encore Search Partners, which is a fast-growing executive search firm, so fast. Uh, here in Houston, they've been the second-largest private firm. Uh, they got to that size in under, under six years and been one of the fastest-growing firms in Houston, two years in a row recognized by the Houston Business Journal. More importantly, uh, he's an outrageous character, a, a, a social networking rock star, a friend to all who know him, and a good friend of mine. And I'm really happy to have Jeremy Jensen here today. How are you doing? This is the time of COVID-19.
1: You know, I'm doing well. And uh, honestly, I think one of the big reasons why I can say that is uh, Trump came through with that PPP money last week. And so uh, when that hits the deposit, you can certainly start sleeping through the night and and, uh, rest assured that you're not going to have to let go of your entire team just because all of your clients pulled all of their contracts. Right, so so
0: did it happen? Did all your clients pull your contracts?
1: Well, fortunately, we're pretty diversified, meaning we recruit for the oil and gas industry, industrial, wealth management firms, and law firms. And I would say about eighty percent of our clients pulled back, uh, specifically in oil and gas industrial and legal but right now
0: 80 percent of your clients pulled back in some way in
1: in some way absolutely and so while we were forecasting probably an 80 percent revenue hit luckily the decisions that i made back in 2016 really paid off to where we're probably only going to experience maybe a 20 percent hit to revenue through this coronavirus pandemic
0: All right. So 2016 was not yesterday. That was some, that was a time ago. What did you do then that helps you now?
1: Um, so I brought in, uh, an EOS, uh, integrator. Uh, he's now the president of my company. And, And whenever we took a look at the business, we realized that we were too heavily focused in one specific practice area. And so we, uh, leveraged our proprietary process, diversified into different markets. And fortunately, um, a business unit that, that I didn't even exist prior to 2017 is now our largest business unit, and that is where we recruit individuals in the wealth management space.
0: Recruit individuals in the wealth management. Okay, okay so that was just one of your segments, and it turns out to be a big part of
1: it. It's a big part now. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like right this minute, right at this minute, you know, this morning we sent out a $73,000 invoice because there was a financial advisor in Chicago that somebody was just salivating to get on the team. They wanted him so bad, uh, even though they couldn't shake his hand and invite him into the office and, and, uh, have him meet all the employees. They were willing to take that risk, juggle the dice and onboard this individual remotely.
0: That's, that's, isn't that incredible? I mean, that's a lot of money. It's a it's a risky feeling time, and there's less process than they're used to. They're outside of their comfort zone. Everybody is. What what do you attribute that to? I mean, that's that's people buying with confidence, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think it's attributed to maybe these last thirty days um, through the the mandatory quarantine. We're now finding that you know with the access of information to find on individuals online, whether it's through background checks. Uh, reference checks, uh, pulling broker checks and things of that nature, you can pretty much get an accurate snapshot on, on, on whether or not they're, they're a good person, you know, financially, right? Or whether they provide honest and ethical services to their clients. And now that we have become so accustomed to doing these video interviews and video happy hours and video birthday parties and even video weddings. Uh,
0: Have you been to a video wedding? Yeah,
1: I've seen it. I saw it on uh, ABC News last week. I've,
0: but you haven't got it. No, nobody one, you know.
1: I haven't attended one. But the point that I'm making is, is I think individuals are becoming increasingly more comfortable with uh, developing and going deep and developing relationships with individuals through video now. And that's something that didn't even exist, you know, uh, prior to this coronavirus pandemic. And so, uh, you know, of course, they're going to do their due diligence with regards to uh, reference checking and making sure that the clients are going to come with this individual. But whenever it comes to getting to know the person on a personal level and determining whether there's chemistry with that person, we're, we're cracking beers over video interviews now. You know, and it, and it truly, you means, are, means, you are seeing it.
0: Your firm is actually, your, your people are drinking <laughs> on, on camera with your, with your, with your client's prospects. Is that, I mean,
1: I'm absolutely let's keep it real, man. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's, it's something that, uh, that uh, we didn't necessarily know that we needed to have in the handbook but hey you know if if, if a little glass of tito's uh, is gonna take the edge off right whenever your kid is screaming two doors down uh then hey we support it right but
0: Well, it's funny. I mean, alcohol seems to be an essential service. Like you know, you can you got to keep the cars running. You got to keep alcohol flowing. (laughs) In terms, we got to keep the trucks on the road and and supply chain alive, and people need to be able to be drinking. And you can get drinks through your delivery to go orders as as a part an emergency measure. And and now you're saying alcohol uh, shows up in the in the workforce. And I'm making kind of making a joke out of that, but is there some truth? In, is, there, is there some wisdom in
1: that pattern we just described? No, there's an app. Ab, there's absolute wisdom. You know? I, you know, I was married for nine and a half years. And I'll tell you, if alcohol would not have been, uh, you know, in the picture, you know, uh, from, from 8 p.m. to midnight, three nights a week, I don't necessarily know if I would have made it as long. And, and so, you know, when you're plugged into a controlled environment where it's out of control, right, and chaotic, where you may have three kids, A wife, clients banging down your door, your boss saying, hey, why aren't you hitting your KPIs? Uh, You got to have some type of coping mechanism to get you through the day, right? And at the end of the day, I'm not encouraging getting drunk. What I'm encouraging is, hey, everybody, if you're open to it, uh, there's no harm in taking the edge off. I guess that's
0: Hmm. my. Interesting. Yeah. So I feel like I've kind of opened Pandora's box now because I, I Jeff, I definitely have a personal aversion to alcohol as medication, right? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's just a tragic combination of. of <laughs> I see people use it all the time. I just need a drink, and my personal experience with that has not been good. So I, I do, definitely, personally, do not encourage it as any sort of a medication. But I do feel like what you said there, um, we are breaking down some barriers uh, and that's sort of the theme maybe maybe that's the theme i'll 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 take from this that it, uh the disruption of patterns it's a pattern interrupt if if you enjoy your takeout on a different level if the takeout shows up with beer in it that's a different take takeout experience your family experience is different your interview different experience is different uh and and they are going to see something a little less prepackaged, maybe do you see more truth in people when people sort of like, Hey, I know this is a different world, you know, and you know, open up the beer and like, Hey, I gotta be real. You know, I don't want to move to Chicago Uh, or I've been, so.
1: Well, to get off the alcohol topic, I think, you know, there is absolute um, visibility into somebody's, you know, true character and personal life. Whenever you're uh, facilitating a video interview with them, Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I uh, did a video video interview with a candidate that, um, you know, had a massive uh, deer head on his wall in his office. Right. And that spawned uh, an organic conversation to talk about his passion for hunting and things of that nature. Right. And so I think that with video interviews, you're sort of letting people in to see the real you inside of your uh you know primary environment where you can control what the surroundings are right i'm looking at you right now and in your man cave and you've got a guitar you've got golf clubs but but more importantly i see hundreds of books you've got a massive library there as well and so that could lend Uh, a little bit more organic conversation into what it is that you value and what it is that you like to spend your leisure time doing, right? And so those are the things that may not necessarily come up in an initial prospect meeting or an initial candidate interview to where if I have insight into that, it can really open up uh, and motivate somebody to be a little bit more transparent.
0: So it's interesting. I think part of this is – if there's a traditional interview process, it can be very staged, right? Because we know step one, step two, step three. Wear the suit, wear the tie. This is the right color. Um, you know, don't drink. We know we're not doing that. But now it's a world like I don't know. You can do whatever. You can drink. You can you can wear a t-shirt maybe. And you can see your house. It, it sounds like it's a combination of changing expectations, relaxed expectations, and so much less scripted. It's just it would be impossible to try to stage every piece of this. Like I could, like oh, I'm gonna set up my whole room. Am I gonna? Am I gonna figure out the my mic situation and headphones for the interview? It's like there's so many variables. It's just like, well, they're just gonna see the real me <laughs> because I don't have time to fix everything. That's gonna be a little bit rough around the edges. Um, do you think this is sustainable? Is this gonna is this gonna continue or are people gonna figure it out?
1: Uh, so you're talking about individuals working from home and being productive working from home no great
0: question I don't think I was clear at all I'm thinking like uh, that I see. it seems like we can interview better now it seems like we can interview better now
1: um, or well, maybe step back can we interview better now we can absolutely interview better now and, and, and truth be told I think one of the directions that corporate HR is, is going is, is is they're making more uh, data driven uh, decisions right by doing uh, facilitating testing into personality tests aptitude tests Um, and, and gathering those insights and making actionable decisions based on what the data says, right? Not necessarily just, uh, hiring the person that interviews the best. Right. And so I think that's the way that things have operated for the last 200 years is do I have chemistry with this person? Do I seemingly trust this person and would I grab a beer with them after work? Right. I think there's a lot of employers that kind of base their decision making uh, uh, final decisions on those three variables. And at the end of the day, because we're becoming a little bit more technology focused, uh, employers are able to make actionable decisions based on what the actual data says.
0: Well, do you have any advice for people right now to maximize this? Like people are interviewing right now. They're a little uncomfortable, and I think we're kind of saying like, "Hey, this, this, this get comfortable. This is awesome." Yeah, like for, for
1: both sides, how do you how do you maximize it? Yeah. So you asked, do I have any advice for people that are maybe interviewing right now? Yeah. 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 for both sides.
0: Actually, people. I was actually thinking of the employer yeah. who's got to hire well because that's who I spend most of my time with, and they're they're sort of trying to figure out how to hire well right yeah. now in a in a different time. But both sides. Cause people are, people who do follow this podcast are, are some of them are out of work and some of them are looking for the next yeah, opportunity. Really. So both sides.
1: Yeah. So I'll talk about the candidates first. Right. And so, you know, you've heard in real estate, it's a buyer's market or it's a seller's market. Right. Um, and you know, what we'll kind of correlate those two is, is the buyers are the candidates right? That are looking for a job, right? Just like a buyer's looking for a house. And the seller is the one that actually has the asset and saying, hey, I've got this for sale. Do you want to come buy it? Right? And so right now, what we've seen over the last 60 days is that the market has shifted. It's specifically here in Houston, Texas, with the price of oil literally going from $60 a barrel to negative, Uh, I think right now it's in the teens, but, uh, you know, with all of the layoffs that have already occurred in Houston, whether it's hospitality, retail, energy, manufacturing, industrial, um, this market has quickly shifted from being a buyer's market to a seller's market. And so uh, jobs are fewer and farther between. Um, Candidates that are looking for a job are obviously – you know, a plenty right now. And so advice to people that are looking for a job opportunity, the biggest word of advice I would give you is be open to jumping through hoops. So let's, so let's jump into some fun commentary. I don't want to talk about hiring. I don't want to talk about, let's talk about something related to, um, you know, how to motivate and inspire your employees or how to attract employees or, you know, are you tracking the, the right ones or whether it's more cost effective to build versus buy, I mean, I think there's a lot more exciting things that we could talk about other than just new norm and what's going to happen with individuals that are looking for a job, right? Like what? I don't know. I mean, here's here's the deal. Here's the deal, man. I know that because I brought in a vice president that – Was self motivated. Um, He had an actual playbook on how to structure, build, and scale a company. Uh, I know that by bringing that individual in, I've been able to five x my business in in three and a half years. And all I really needed to do was just put you know one dollar in in order to get two dollars out. There aren't a ton of layers of complexity to building and scaling a business. And, and that's just really been my experience. And you know, I'll hear other individuals that say, Jeremy, how the hell did you do it? And, and the answer is simple. The answer is simple. I was lazy. I didn't want to do the marketing. So I hired a marketing professional to do it. I didn't want to make cold calls to prospects. So I hired somebody to do it. I didn't want to manage KPIs. So I hired someone to do it. I did not want to listen to call recordings and provide real-time coaching to our people. So I hired someone to do it. The way that I grew my business was because I didn't do shit but hire great people to do this stuff for me.
0: Well, okay. So I want to slow that down because you said a lot. And, and I think the essence of this podcast is somebody hears that and they go, yeah, that worked for him. How do I do it? And so I want to stop at each sort of punctuated point. The first thing, you know, you said... Um, it wasn't that, wasn't that hard. It's not that much to growing it. I work with a lot of businesses and a lot of them worked very very hard, even the really good ones. So that might be a reason to disbelieve. Mm-hmm. you but this ended with, well, in the the beginning was as easy. The middle was, I didn't. I'm lazy, so I delegated everything. Uh, and the and the last part of that was just uh, just hire the right people. I think was kind of how I heard that. And so. It's not easy. I don't think. I think that's total bullshit. I think they might be simple. They might be simple, but it's not easy. Uh, I think that I have seen a, p- a pattern through 20 years where people, individuals, understand their limitations and have a narrow lane where they know they're awesome. Uh, and they don't try to do anything outside of that seem to have an easier time growing businesses. I do see that pattern. Like even at like technical business, Oh, it's an it services business. Well, I don't know anything about technology. And like, well, how did you become so large? Well, I didn't, I just, all I had, I just marketed and sold and I had tech people do the work and, and that works for them. But then you also have, I guess the advantage like when I have really I've billionaires on the show and they say like oh you got to help and I, and I you got to pull that apart right you're a billionaire you can help in a different way than a million dollar or 2 million dollar even a 10 dollars 15 million dollar business can can do so we got to pull that apart you hire you're a hiring guy you hiring is your thing did you so what's your ta- what's your secret how do you how did you hire your 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 second in command your most strategic people Yeah. What makes it so damn easy for you? What makes it so damn easy for you? Well,
1: first of all, right, you have to be open, honest, and transparent. You know, if if people are meeting with you and they don't wholeheartedly feel that you're telling the truth or that you're somebody that they can trust and and be friends with and want to work for, then that opportunity is not ever going to present itself. And so one of the things that I personally did is... I was just myself at networking events and I was just myself on social media and, you know, building a brand that people wanted to follow and engage with. It wasn't a scenario where I was always trying to pitch the service that my company provided.
0: Okay. Being yourself. That's a buzzword, right? And I believe in it and I'm not trying to like discount it, but I do think people glaze over a little bit now because there's a lot of very audacious personalities out there talking about being yourself. You got Gary Vee, you got... um, Got a Grant Cardone. You've got anybody who's got a, a big, bold f bomb dropping personality. Uh, that's those are the people. Be yourself, uh, and I think the audacity is uh, cheap, uh, attention grabbing, and that if it's audacious and you drop the f bomb and it's authentic, that's actually rarer than somebody who just sort of says like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the room's attention by saying I'm gonna drop the f bomb." How did you find authenticity, and how? What is your authentic self?
1: Um, you know, I don't know if, if if I read a specific book or listened to a specific podcast. I don't want the book.
0: I want to know when you were. Th- what did? You, where did you go wrong? Where did you go right? How did you? Do were you? Are you just uh, a narcissist and you never cared what anybody else thought? Or did you? And that's actually, I don't want to call you a narcissist, but I wonder if there are it, it, when people really truly are born not caring what other people think. Does it go better than than the people who? are very sensitive to people's reactions to them. You
1: know, it's funny that you say that because I think that I probably care what people think more than 99% of the, the rest of the population. And so uh, I absolutely uh, care about what other people think. Right. Um, But with that being said, uh, you know, I don't necessarily know why I, you know, became kind of uncensored and, and uh, started to be, my true authentic self at events and maybe in videos or in social media. Um, I mean, truth be told, I think it was probably related to, you know, going through marriage counseling with my ex-wife and coming to the realization that I wasn't uh, ever going to be the person that she wanted me to be. And that all I was going to do was be myself, live my best life, and that I valued my personality. I valued my time. I valued my my love, my attention, my friendship uh, enough to where other people would would gravitate towards that. If I was my true, authentic, organic self, that there were enough other people out there that wanted to be surrounded by that person. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: It does. And I don't I want you to put this in your own words, but it's... I, maybe i'm my own experience is sort of like when you get tired of trying to figure it out it's like i could just get all that energy back if I just stopped trying anything, if I just let it flow out naturally, if I just say what's on my mind instead of wondering what I should say, um, all that energy comes back. I've tried to figure out what other people wanted. It didn't work. And so maybe I'll just stop all that shenanigans and let the people who are fine with me as I already am find me and this will make it easier for everybody.
1: Yeah, not necessarily just fine with you, but are motivated and inspired by that true organic self, right? I mean, when you talk about culture... Uh, and again, I'm not a culture person, right? I'm not an HR professional, right? I'm a headhunter. It's probably a little bit closer to being, uh, you know, a stockbroker, you know, dialing for dollars and making it a numbers game. But, uh, what I was going to say is, is, you know, a culture is, is defined by having everybody rowing the boat in the same direction. Right. And if, if that means that the CEO is, you know, Grant Cardone with his, uh, super aggressive and, tell it like it is type persona, right? The, 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 person that's, you know, the mousy accountant sitting in the corner is probably not going to like that culture. But when you surround Grant Cardone with individuals that share the same mission, vision, and values and respect that persona, now they can all row that boat in the same direction. Now it may very well be in a completely different direction than, the, the boat that, you know, Bill Gates was driving and the boat that Steve Jobs was driving or the boat that Tony Robbins is driving. But at the end of the day, they're going to put they're going to point it in the direction they want to go in. And they're going to sprint in that direction because they're all speaking the same language and they're all fired up about being on the same team.
0: So, I mean, this this ties together a Hundred threads. I mean, I mean, almost every podcast recording since the beginning has talked about something about identity and self, and core values and culture and authenticity and finding, discovering them, and turning them up to eleven. Uh, do you find yourself a hundred percent unrestrained at all times? Do you, or is there times when you got to dial it back? Do you adjust for your audience?
1: No, absolutely. Um, you know, the biggest audience where I would say I find myself really being intentional about dialing it back and, um, and, and kind of thinking before I'm speaking is really my own internal employees. And, um, you know, a lot of that is attributed to, um, you know, me kind of growing up early on in the organization and being somewhat of a perfectionist and a hothead and, you know, Hey, if you did it wrong, just let me do it, get out of my way. Um, you know, it really wasn't until I brought in, scott kelly at the time who was my vice president who's now the president of the company to where i definitively had somebody that was making sure that i was right beating to the right drum and and adhering to the core values and treating everybody with respect um and so i absolutely have to police myself in that regard because um you know this isn't a um you know, in an environment that's driven by a dictator, right? We recognize that our people are our most valuable asset. And uh, fortunately, I've got a president that that does an amazing job at uh, coaching and mentoring myself and making sure that I don't deviate from, uh, you know, the, the the core values and in the direction that we've all agreed that we we're going to row this boat.
0: So, so what I hear in that is, something I've heard in a lot of other great leaders that is it's not just exactly about being yourself. That's part of it. It is figuring out your best self and understanding that there is some intentionality about this, that I am me. I cannot be not me. And there are things about me that are, that I really am proud of. And I want to live into, which might mean two things. And that is that once we agree to the rules, I have to play by them too, even though I might not always want to, which is a kind of counterintuitive thing. It's like I wrote the rules around me and then somehow I can't even follow my own rules. Why is that? But I think that's true. Do you experience that? Like you write a rule, like yeah, it's about totally. you and then suddenly it's hard to, so it's weird. I I, I, I want to be like this. I've always been like this. And then our day is like, well, I don't want to be like that today. It's like, well, too bad. <laughs> you have to. You said we do this and you got to live by your own rules. Which then the second dimension of that is growing into it, because as time goes on, you may raise the bar. Have you raised the bar for yourself?
1: You know, I think in many areas I absolutely have risen the bar for myself. But at the end of the day, um, I have enough self-awareness to know that um, you know I'm so far from from meeting my own expectations in certain areas to where I've got to be very intentional about working hard on becoming that best version of myself. And so, um, you know, we definitely set high bars. Uh, we definitely have raised, you know, bars where maybe the status quo was set a little bit too low. Uh, but I think one of the things that, that, that my leadership team prides ourselves on is that we've all got areas of opportunity to improve. And, and that means, you know, in business, uh, in our relationships, physically, mentally, across the board.
0: Well, how, okay. So, how does your leadership team hold you accountable and gr- help you grow in that? I have to imagine if you bring in the right, like you got Scott, who's your, we'll call him your integrator, your second in command, your president, all that to say, your real, your single key leader that you delegate. The leadership team functions to, you know, that's really the big boss in the organization who reports to you. How does how does that interplay? So how, how,
1: yeah. I think that a way the way that it interplays is is a is creating a very open environment where we can be fully transparent with one another, you know? And, and if I tell, you know, Scott, my executive vice president, Casey Knight, you know, the things that are keeping me up at night and the things that, that uh, you know, the own internal demons that I'm fighting or whatever it's, whatever it is, you know, if I'm able to be transparent about it and I not only have my partners, but my, best friends help process those issues with me. And they have no ulterior motive, right? They want to see me achieve my own personal goals and they want to see me succeed in business as well. To where I would say that the key is is to find that 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 real close circle of folks where you can truly be your authentic self and in and, and and for lack of a better phrase, lift the skirt right? Show them the good and the bad and have them be uh, confidants that can give you trusted advice. Now, at the end of the day, uh, the accountability falls on you, right? But it, but, but it's, it's, it's one of those situations where I've created an environment where, with my leadership team and my EO small group uh, to where I can talk about things that are keeping me up at night. And those individuals that truly care can give me unbiased and unfiltered insight in order to help me make the best decision to go forward
0: how did you create that? I think a lot of people want that and they, and they go and they try to hire their, their second in command or their integrator and it doesn't work. What, how did you get there? Did you just get lucky on the first shot? Did you make some false starts?
1: Uh, You know, I think I got there in uh, therapy. Right. And um, you know, I've gone to therapy three times in my life for, let's say six to 10 sessions each time. So it's not a situation where, you know, I've gone through it, you know, for the last nine years, but uh, you know, in, in, in being vulnerable and, and being open and help, you know, a professional help you process your own thoughts and consolidate your own thoughts uh, in order to say, you know, hey, that light bulb's going off. I really didn't know that that was an area of exposure for me. And I need to be intentional about filling that gap. And so.
0: So this, this is not small. So I, I would, I would I, this is, and this is not what gets talked about all the time. So I want to really unpack this. This was personal relationship therapy. This was professional leadership therapy. What was this like?
1: Yeah, so you know, therapy, man. You know, therapy. I mean, I don't want to go into. Indiv- in, uh, sure,
0: individual therapist. You and a therapist trying to unpack your situation. One on
1: one. And you okay. know what? It was really inspired by is is you know here I was successful company, three beautiful young kids, massive house, pool, outdoor kitchen, half acre lot. I had everything, right? The fancy exotic cars, the beautiful wife, and everyone would have pointed at me and said, man, that guy has made it. That guy is at the pinnacle of his life and he's truly happy. And guess what? Each and every single day I was unhappy. And so I knew that I needed to go and unpack that and figure out why I wasn't happy. And, um, you know, I'm still working through a few things, but, uh, you know, I think that element of self-awareness is really what helped me in recognizing the areas that I need to focus on and be intentional about improving because at the end of the day, man, it's not always the top line. It's not always oh, the bottom sure. line. You mm. know, sometimes it's, you know, Hey, I got to care more about what my own internal people think about me because at the end of the day, I don't want, you know, a, a coup to be staged where one of my officers picks up a uh, 90% of my team and go creates a firm across the street. Right. And so mm. I think, Being intentional about being the boss that you want to be, the husband that you want to be, the father that you want to be, all those things are intertwined. I absolutely believe that. What do you
0: think, or what do you, was looking back, how are you holding yourself back? How are you standing in your own way?
1: So the way, so that's a great question. And I I don't think that anybody's ever asked me that before, but I know the answer. Uh, I was an arrogant prick that always knew that I was the smartest guy in the room. And it was an intimidating thought for me to be in a room with people that were on my level or maybe even potentially higher than my level. Does that make sense?
0: It, It makes perfect sense.
1: And so I think one of the massive turning points in my career. Well, not even really career, but in personal life is whenever I joined the entrepreneurs organization. You know, I was a millionaire at 30 years old, Mark, and Hmm. I advertised it. I waved the fucking flag and said, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. And, you know, really a lot of it was spawned from my own insecurities growing up poor and having nothing and, and being jealous of my friends that had better cars and bigger houses. Um, but, uh, but when I joined the entrepreneurs organization and was now sitting at a table where I, individuals are making one, $2 million a month, hmm. not just a year and having those individuals, uh, or having witnessed those individuals and the humility that they had and and the, and the, the willingness to help new members and, and give their time, which obviously is their most valuable asset in seeing how those individuals treated others. That's what really motivated and inspired me to say, Hey, I'm not shit. I need to recognize what my strengths are. I need to focus on those. But at the end of the day, it's really the legacy and the relationships that create long-term, lasting remembrance and and and, um, and just you know personal wealth. It's not all about the numbers in the bank account. It's about the way that you make people feel. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So in this in this moment those i mean, this was probably a period probably a long period i'm guessing that you 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 look back at this as a, as an epiphany and you can put a phrase to it but this was probably a period of weeks months or maybe years that 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 this transformation occurred as you're sort of realizing My old way isn't useful. My new way is going to be different. What? How does your behavior start changing? What are the things you start to intentionally do to to put the your life in the direction you want it to be?
1: Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I mean, every single day that I go into the office and I sit at my desk, I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to make money today? Right. Um, And so you know that's still a pivotal pivotal focus. You know, at 36 years old for me in my career. Um, but with that being said, I think the biggest thing that has changed is we've been able to attract individuals that weren't necessarily simply motivated with by what is the base salary and what's the commission potential. It's hiring people that um, you know believe in you know the vision. They believe in the leadership team. They trust the leadership team. And at the end of the day, I know that I can trust them because, you know, they're putting their 110% into their role and implementing create, creative, you know, problem solving, uh, you know, abilities in order to diversify into areas that I couldn't even think of. And so I guess the short answer is, is by kind of changing my own mentality and giving other people the stage, and giving them the recognition and the compensation. Um, it, it, it's it's really bred an environment of having 25 entrepreneurs, not just one.
0: Okay, because mm-hmm. that was the que- that was the question: is that you know how does uh, how are you leading differently now? Is and the result? A lot of people love to see the result. I mean, every EO event we've ever been to together, and seeing other people on stage, we see the polish, we see the results, and it motivates us. And I think the missing part of the conversation is like is the dark time. I mean, we even hear like it was really tough. I had to pay. You know, uh, payroll out of my credit card or what? what and I was down to zero dollars. Like everybody's heard that story a million times. That's not the hard stuff. I mean, it is, but you don't choose it. It comes and lands on you like a ton of bricks and you got to either die or dig your way out. The really hard stuff is the optional stuff. I'm going to be a better leader today because I want to be, I want to get out of my way. I'm going to change my behavior because, and I'm willing and humble to do that. And it sounds like the essence of that was, to, to really get the spotlight was to really give away the spotlight and let other people take recognition, take ownership and, and start the conversations around, you know, how can you be better? How can I help you be better? And put that in your own words. What do you, what do you, what did you see your transformation look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so you'd made a comment earlier is how long did that take? Right. The process started, you know, back in 2016. Right. Um, but with that being said, it really wasn't until, you know, maybe 17, 18, 19, it really started to evolve. And I think a lot of that was attributed throughout the process of doing confidential surveys inside of the organization and, uh, and me reading the feedback on those surveys. Um, and here I was thinking that I was creating an environment where people were fairly paid, um and you know recognize but but there was a consistent uh question on each and every one of the surveys right or two two questions one of them was uh do you feel like the management team treats you with respect provide a commentary around that and then the second question was if you were to leave encore search today what would be the reason why and i would say it was a very humbling experience um, to read that feedback um, and, and for individuals to legitimately name me right Jeremy does this Jeremy did this I wish this would happen and uh, and I would say that's really what the turning point was where I was sitting in my office reading those confidential surveys where I didn't know who was sharing the feedback uh, but but would literally start crying because I had no idea that my team felt this way here I thought I was creating a very successful, profitable company that everybody wanted to work at. And it wasn't until I started to ask them for the actual uh, dark stuff to where we could really start to plug those holes and and work on scaling the business.
0: And so you got, it sounds like you got harsh feedback. Like what were some things people said?
1: Oh man, I don't want to get into it. (laughs) Man, you're not going to go there with me. Um, you know, a leader, a leader should never. It doesn't matter if your employee lost you fourteen thousand dollars, or you know what, 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 fell victim of a phishing scam. Uh, you should never uh, berate or reprimand an employee in front of their coworkers, right? Yeah, and, right. and that's something that I knew, you know, as as, as an eleven year old kid, right? It, it's it's no news no news to you or no news to your audience. But, um, but whenever you do things and you really don't even know that you're doing it, um, that becomes a problem. Right. And that's whenever you rely on the individuals that you trust around you that are pointing it out and coaching you through it.
0: So that, I think that point deserves extra attention. And that is, you don't know your own blind spots. And if, if you've hit the ceiling in in your personal leadership growth, your company's growth, you know, by by definition, like the evidence is there. There's a black hole. How do we know a black hole? Because things keep disappearing into the black hole. <laughs> that we haven't seen a black hole in, in outer space, but we know they're there. Why? Because things keep happening. The company's at a ceiling, my leadership's at a ceiling, there's a black hole. It's our blind spot. And the trick is how do you get into it? And then it, and then once you can see in it, did you stare into the eyes of Medusa and are you paralyzed or are you reacting to it?
1: Yeah, so what we do. And and what we did was, you know, we have quarterly town halls um, where we talk about, right, we'll call it the State of the Union, where we bring everybody off-site, everyone in the company. And it's about a a two-and-a-half-hour presentation, PowerPoint. And, um, you know, one of the things that I did was I read the negative feedback out loud to my entire team. Ooh, how hard was that? Oh, man. I mean, there were definitely some waterworks, I'll tell you that. But... Uh, and then there was a commitment, there was a commitment to fix it, right? A verbal contract that I made to my group to say I hear you and I'm gonna do something about it. right. And so that's one of the things that's really helped our organization with regards to um, creating stickiness with our employees or loyalty, um, and really just promoting that kind of open door policy where they can come in and, and voice any types of concerns or uh, or foreseeable roadblocks instead of feeling like, you know, it's a dictatorship and all I'm here is just a cog in the wheel to, you know, to make money for the organization. And so, um, you know, really, that was a big turning point inside of our company specifically was whenever our employees, whether they've been been with us for five years or five weeks, you know, that the, they saw that, that we're committed um, to becoming better versions of ourselves. That's whenever people started to be excited about working for Encore Search. It became not just a job but a family and a career.
0: So, I mean, everything you're saying is so beautiful and I appreciate it. One of the things that I, I see in growing companies is that whatever you do to get you here, um, it, it tends to get harder to keep doing that if the success is coming. Ironically, right? You think when success comes, you're going to have more resources and less risk, but as company grows, you have more people. And as you have more people, you have more conversations. And as you have more conversations, you have more reason to be in opportunities to miscommunicate. You've got more managers and, and everything gets harder. How do you, now that you've got this leadership and team in place, as you're growing, keep the lens on the blind spot and allow that free flow of information of the most critical, harsh, bad news and, and delegate and empower and get the leadership team to do their part without you having to run around and being the sole leader doing everything.
1: Uh, so there were a few parts of that question. Can you, can you simplify it for me for just a second?
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you keep, the, with more people and more leaders involved, how do you keep that flow that flow of information?
1: Yeah, so I'll say we're really trying to figure that out. You know, my, my president has gotten to the point where, you know, one-on-ones, you know, take up 25 hours of his 40-hour work week. Um, and maybe they're not on the calendar for 25 hours, but that's really what it kind of evolves into. Um, and so one of the things that we recently did was we created an extra layer of middle management. Uh, we, we hired a training and operations manager, um, to kind of take a lot off of his plate. That way I could delegate more towards him. Um, you know, another thing that that I personally did was I committed to, you know, spending a lot of time out of the office with my leadership team where we could still kind of solidify those personal relationships and that stickiness, but more importantly, you know, potentially have another four to five hours a week where we can talk off script, um, and, you know, about the business and the health of the business and, and, um, and just maybe go a little bit deeper, uh, in those conversations where maybe we wouldn't have had the time, uh, to do that within the, the standard 40 hour work week.
0: So with mi- more middle management, more leaders, do you, do you get feedback or there are there problems with people who used to talk to you directly feeling like they can't talk to you directly anymore?
1: No, I mean, we're small enough at 25 employees to where, you know, I'm, I'm always going to have the open door. Scott's always going to have the open door. You know, I haven't, you know, grown the business to 50 or 75 employees where I think that that opportunity would, um, would not be there, right? And so I would say that at our size, it really hasn't presented itself yet. And at the end of the day, our middle managers are really lieutenants that are uh, kind of implementing a lot of the, the the strategic decisions that are made at the sea level and they're really more doing the tactical behind it, right? And so whenever it comes to being that, that confidant or that sounding board for individuals on the front line, that's still coming to myself and to my president.
0: So, okay, so how does that information flow to you without bypassing leadership? I mean, if... Tell, to walk me through how information flows to you, and and keep and so leadership, other leadership stays in, in the know as well.
1: Yeah, so we've got a a published um, accountability chart, right, where individuals know where you go with specific issues or concerns, whether it be personnel issues or technology issues or or HR issues, right? And so, um, you know, I think it's clearly defined within our four walls at the office on on where you go with what specific challenges. Um, but for the most part, you know, there really is only one medium that's directly coming to me. And again, that's, that's my integrator, right? So he's the filter, um, that's coming in and saying, Hey, here's the problem. Um, here's my proposal with regards to to a solution. What do you want to do? What is your take? Right. And so, um, that's been kind of our process and, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I probably agree with him 90% of the time provide a little bit different perspective, 10% of the time. And, um, you know, he feels that I do a great job of hearing out, you know, his solutions. And, and, uh, as I mentioned, 90% of the time we're implementing, you know, uh, what his thoughts are, his solutions. But at the end of the day, uh, most of the big decisions, whether it's, um, uh, you know, putting people on performance improvement plans or terminating individuals or even hiring individuals, those are made by committee at our organization. Uh, Committees?
0: that sounds bureaucratic. Tell me about that.
1: Um, no, I mean, it's just, you know, I think that, you know, everybody needs to kind of be on the same page in order to uh, give individuals a fair shot. Um, and so, you know, we give uh, the middle managers, the, the C-level executives an opportunity of to, to interview all potential new hires, even if it's in different business units, because, you know, I feel like, um, you know, we do need to take everybody's opinions into account and, you know, I may value one thing as a strength, but an individual that may work with that person each and every day may view it as a weakness. And I need to be, I need to create an environment where, where we can be transparent around foreseeable bottlenecks before we hire individuals.
0: So how does consensus and veto power fit into this committee structure?
1: Um you know it's really not clearly defined right and so I think everybody okay. has a voice um but there's no specific point system or hierarchy where we say hey well if Jeremy says yes and Blair says no then it's a no hire right and so how,
0: so how do you how do you prevent deadlock how do you how do you make decisions without getting stuck
1: yeah i think it's mutual respect you know it's 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 really um listening to the feedback from your peers And digesting that and giving them a stage where they can voice their concerns or, or uh, voice an opportunity to fight for a specific person. Right. And so that's, that's what I'll say. It's mutual respect.
0: So I, I know you guys run on an EOS and in EOS, the, the, the accountability chart would have a very clear, accountable hiring manager. Like this person is accountable to this manager. Do you, does that manager get the, the ultimate decision or do they get overridden? or because it sounds Because I'm hearing you say that this is not bureaucratic. It works just great. But the way you're describing it sounds like if I told people to do it, it would be a disaster. So I want to kind of yeah. pull it apart. So if somebody does listen and implement this, they don't get themselves stuck with indecision. Correct. Yeah. Does your does the hiring manager have an outsized vote? Do sure. they do they listen and then make a call, or or how do you prevent people from getting stuck?
1: Yeah, it's definitely they listen and then make the call. The specific hiring okay. manager has the vote. Absolutely.
0: Okay, that's, that was the key piece that I needed to land because when we, if more than one person owns it, nobody owns it, and we just get locked in, in indecision and, and, I, and this empowerment concept. There's a leader on the accountability chart, one name, one job. Give them the power, give them the right to succeed and the right to fail. If you don't do that, you are going to end up doing their job for them. What scares you right now? Hmm.
1: That's a tough question. I, I would say that I'm not an individual that tosses and turns at night um, because things scare me. Um, I was, I've i always been the type of guy that, that would run in the face of adversity. Um, I'm, a, I'm a quick thinker. I'm a problem solver. Um, and, and I make do, right? Um, you know, my favorite uh, TV show as a kid was the show MacGyver. I'm not sure if you remember that, okay. right? But, oh, yeah. Um, you know, if you said what scares me, um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I would say that I'm not really scared of anything right now.
0: Um, Is there a time you can think of in the in the last few years where you were re- afraid? Where, you, yeah.
1: You know, I really can't. I really can't think of any time that I was afraid. Yeah. When yeah. when
0: the COVID lock, the lockdown started coming, you were like, no problem. Did, did, did the uncertainty hit you in any way?
1: no absolutely not you know it, because of the way that our organization is structured to where people are so kpi driven we knew that we could give them an ip phone and literally give uh give them their laptops and in, in a dual monitors at home um to where they would have full-scale capabilities in order to do their job from home and you know we made it very clear that there was zero tolerance with regards to production um and um and you know fortunately uh, we haven't had to do any reductions in force since people had to go started to go work from home because people are eating their KPIs, and so I knew that our team was equipped with the right training and tools in order to be successful. Um, you know, with that being said, there was a time where I was scared, and it, it feels like so long ago—over five years ago. And if you want to talk about something from back then, I can definitely give you some insight because I would imagine yes, I do. I would imagine some of your listeners have been faced with the same thing. So, uh, back in late 2014, uh, oil and gas plummeted from 108 dollars a barrel down to about 40 in about a 45 day span. Right, and so um, you know, there were deals on the board that I had at 95% accepted offers, start dates, and companies were pulling the offers saying, Hey, we literally can't onboard anybody. We are in a hiring freeze from HR can't hire anybody better yet use external agencies. And so, uh, at the time I had probably a seven person firm and, uh, and, we were consistently doing about $100,000 to $120,000 a month in revenue. And uh, and that all went to zero. You know, December was small. January was zero. And when your fixed expenses are, you know, $60,000 a month and revenue zero, that's a really tough punch in the gut to take, right? You know, I was faced yeah. with the decision of, do I fire everybody weather the storm live off of the money that I've made the last few years. Right. Uh, and just wait it out. Uh, that was one option. Uh, second option was, uh, do I call it quits, shut down the company, take a full-time W two job, uh, which I did flirt with an organization and they made me an offer and I politely declined, but I needed a contingency plan. Um, Or number three, do what I did, uh, change the name of the company, tweak the business model, doubled down, actually hired staff, doubled down, diversified nationwide, uh, invested more money, and fortunately came out stronger and bigger on the other end of this deal. And so uh, I was super scared at that time because I was in a position where I was fortunate enough uh, to have a spouse that was a six-figure earner, and uh, she was expecting – Um, our, I guess it would be our second child now. And, uh, and she was informed by her employer that she was going to be laid off. And I think that's probably what contributed the biggest element of fear was everything that was in my control. I knew I would figure it out. I always do. I'm the serial procrastinator that you know, woke up at 3 a.m. the day of the test and started studying four hours before the actual test. I didn't even do it the night before, but I always knew I would figure it out. But the point that I'm making is, is whenever that outside of my control, uh, that opportunity presented itself, I would say I was scared that day whenever she informed me that she was getting laid off. Now, fortunately, uh, people in other departments, whenever they heard that she was getting laid off, uh, started to uh, create dialogue internally saying, well, I have this open position. Can we just transfer her here? And so once it started to be publicized that she was getting laid off, she actually had three opportunities to interview internally for her, And her company kept her on, fortunately.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I can imagine a lot of people relating to that. And and one point thing I want to point out, you said you changed the name of the company. That wasn't because you were trying to hide the past of the company. It was because you were trying to rebrand into this new business Correct.
1: model, right? Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So we changed the name of the company. We scooted,
1: scooted yeah. across town.
0: We <laughs> we locked the doors. Yeah. took our all our stuff. No, yeah. no, that wasn't it at all. Yeah. So so okay. So you pivoted. You you thought well, the old model isn't working. There is a new model. I can see you. So you had vision about the future
1: absolutely we made very very quick decisions and executed on them quickly i think that was the key to us surviving is we didn't we didn't wait 60 days to look at the data and say hey uh you know you know we're down revenue we're burning this we need to look at doing layoffs no we saw you know what the next 90 to 180 days was going to look like and we made decisions very very quickly
0: yeah, I, I am concerned about companies that uh, say they're just going to sort of wait it out. I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to miss, a lot of engagement that you are missing out on, a lot of opportunity to help people, a lot of things you can learn, a lot of investments you can make now at a cost that you can't compete with. You know, like if you're tr- if you're going to spend this money and time, if you're not being productive now, and if you've got to go spend money and time again in 60 days that you could have done in the first 60 days, well, you're you're gonna be doubling your expenses and you're gonna be twice behind your competition.
1: Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree.
0: I get that it's hard though. A lot of people sort of feel like they don't know what to do, they're they're busy or overwhelmed by uncertainty. And not, and we've talked about this on with several guests, that it's not always obvious what the pivot looks like. It's not always obvious how to help somebody, your company, your client, the world. And and sometimes it takes a couple of tries, a couple of com- many, many conversations to figure out what people need to do. Um, So I encourage entrepreneurs who are stuck and they feel like they're a long way from revenue or if they've had a huge fall off or if their industry is going to be in a total transformation, that it does require some patience um, to – and I I bet you – back to that time, I mean, this was probably – well, I don't know, even if you did a light switch, wake up in the morning, like Monday morning, you wake up, you're like, you know, I'm all in. It's going to be ESP. we got a new name. We're doing this. It wasn't two days later. It was successful. It was a lot of iteration for a long time. You had to have the dream and you had to fight for it, just like you were starting
1: your very first business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, fortunately, I already had a team that I knew and trust around me, right? Ones that that knew that they could trust me because I was being transparent throughout the process, in uh, letting them know where I was talking to potential employers for myself and uh, the fact that my spouse was being laid off. Right. And so they valued that air of transparency so they could make decisions on their end for their family's success. Right. And so uh, I would say that was really why we were successful whenever we rebranded and doubled down is because the, I took care of the people and was honest with the people during the dark times, during the times of uncertainty. I didn't hide the balance sheet, right? I didn't tell them that things are great. And that I was, you know, making decisions about potentially doing layoffs in behind closed doors. And so they trusted me and believed in the, in what we were doing at the other, at the other end of that. Tunnel.
0: So that's, a, that's a theme in all the great leadership conversations I've had. Got to tell the truth, especially if it's brutally bad, we got to really build trust through that honesty But you also said something I want to highlight again is that a lot of people feel the revenue's gone or the opportunity feels uncertain. And so there's a feeling of scarcity. And that's, that's fair. That's, there may be some brutal facts, brutal honesty you need to, to come to bear with. But if you have a team, if you have assets, experience, uh, people who you know, that's a huge asset. I mean, we just talked about building a leadership team and how hard that can be for companies to find their, their second in command and their real leadership team. People try it for a long, long time to get that. And so if you have a team and you know what they can do, uh, then you've got a big asset that you could redeploy fast and get on the ground. You know, half the equations there. All you might have to do is market and sell, which I know is a lot, but it's you have a lot and don't squander that opportunity and fi- maybe find some ways to use part of it or pare it down or work a negotiated deal out. If we, if you if you're laying off half your staff, you know, can you which which half are you keeping and and what can how can you be creative with the resources you have? I, I think that's a really important. Uh, upside to take advantage of. And that's what you did.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So right now, I mean, you, you are just one of several great entrepreneurs, great leaders I talked to who just through the conversation, you know, we end, I end up feeling more fired up than when the conversation starts. And that's what I want to be contagious with all the people who listen to this. What is your passionate plea for entrepreneurs right now?
1: So one of the biggest things that burns me is whenever there are producers, salespeople, right? Or consultants that say that cold calling is dead. My passionate plea to entrepreneurs is if you want to generate business, number one, you have to be wholeheartedly passionate about the product or service that you provide And how it's going to solve a problem for your customer base or make them money. Uh, But number two, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call the people to spread the word on why your product or service is great. I'll tell you guys, as a business owner, I sit at my desk probably 90% of the workday, maybe 80%. And uh, my phone literally rings one, maybe two times a day. And it's usually outsourced to a cold calling service in India or the Philippines. And so whenever people call me at my desk, I answer. And, uh, you know, I grew up as an entrepreneur in sales. And so I respect salespeople. And so if your call target is into the entrepreneurial uh, right. C-level executive, right. Whether it's the CEO or the, or the chief revenue officer or the VP of sales, those guys don't hate being cold called. Give them your best pitch. So that's my passionate plea. Don't listen to the white noise of saying that cold calling doesn't work. Right. Um, pick up the phone and sell your product or service. And there are so many talented people out there that are not in business today right? They're, they're, they're bartenders or servers or assistant managers at mattress firm, or, you know, the general <laughs> manager of a Chipotle. And these folks are making 30, $40,000. They're itching to get into a corporate environment where they can have uncapped earning potential. And I'll tell you, we hire those people, we train them, we give them a shot, and I'm happy to say that there are several of them on our team that are now consistently making six figures because they weren't afraid to pick up the phone.
0: Let's- pick up the phone, pick up the phone. I mean, it's, that's, it's so important. I have experienced that. I, I love that advice. I think that is, could, it couldn't be more timely, I think now is the time to pick up the phone. It, people answer the phone. You know where they are. They're at home. <laughs> you can talk to them. You can find out uh, what's going on. If you don't have anything to sell, you can find out. Or if, or if what you sell isn't appropriate for the time, you can, how are you doing? How can I help? What's going on in your world? So much comes from that. Um, I love that, man. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I, our time's about up. Uh, this conversation has been really good. And I, I, just like I always promise, uh, you know, I don't know that we're going to talk about what we expect to talk about. And we definitely did not. And I, I really love what we talked about. I, I think that people will get a lot out of the, your story. Um, if people want to connect with you, people want to find you, how do they find you on the internet? Is that a, is that a thing for you?
1: Whoa, on the internet. Absolutely. So the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, Believe it or not, I read every single message that people send, and I reply to about 95%. Um, And so if you want to reach out, it's just Jeremy Jensen, J-E-N-S-O-N, and the name of the company is Encore Search Partners. Track me down, shoot me a message, and I'll be happy to engage.
0: Awesome, man. I really, really appreciate the time. I appreciate the vulnerability. I think we really talked about some good stuff that, that people don't get to hear about a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Uh, and that's it for today. So if you like the conversation today, please subscribe, share it with your friends, make sure the word uh, gets out that this information is out there. Let's not keep this a secret. People People need to hear this stuff. So share it with your friends and uh, make sure it's out in the light. We'll see you next time on You're Doing It Wrong. Thanks so much.
1: This yes. Is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary? For more episodes and to subscribe,
0: go to leary.cc.